Uh, we're going to have a second reading now. Um, it's on page 978. We have a few Bibles, and uh, we're reading from Mark. From Mark chapter 8, from verse 27, under Peter's confession of Christ. Some of these words will sound familiar from Caleb's talk this morning. And we're going to read um, to chapter 9, 13. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around this area, Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly they looked round. They no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. When they came, 
Oh, sorry, that's as far as we go. Um, there will be, after the sermon, um, another, another song, uh, with the communion song. Well, it's great to be here with you this morning and to um, have the opportunity to share God's word uh, with you. <clears throat> Let's just open in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, may the Holy Spirit open our word to your heart, to our hearts and our hearts to your word, so that we may know you more clearly, love you more dearly and follow you more closely day by day. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. <clears throat> Have you ever had a mountaintop experience that blew you away? I had one with my wife, Kim. It was in the beautiful country of Switzerland in the European summer of 1984. The Jungfrau is a famous mountain that's 4,000 metres high and its railway station is the highest in Europe. We boarded the train wearing summer clothes because it was a lovely summer's day and we thought, how cold can it be at the top of a mountain in the middle of summer? After some time, we pulled into Jungfrau Station eager to see the alpine scenery. But as we got off the train, we were hit by a blizzard. Visibility was poor and we could only see a few metres ahead. We certainly couldn't see the beautiful alpine scenery. We ventured out into the icy wind for a minute and took a photo just so we could say we'd done it. Then on the way home, I noticed the Jungfrau brochure had strongly recommended you wear cold weather gear all year round. Um, I don't know if we've got the projectionist. Yes. So this is what the locals wore. Okay, you can see what it was like. Uh, have we got the other? Ah, that was my wife, Kim. You can see how well, and that was me. So thank you for that. A memorable mountaintop experience, but not really life-changing. Peter, James and John had a memorable mountaintop experience, but unlike ours, theirs was life-changing. It was a moment of divine disclosure. Peter, for example, specifically refers to it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. Their memorable mountaintop experience is recorded in each of the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark and Luke. Today we look at verses 1 to 13 in particular of chapter 9, which focus on the event known as the transfiguration of Jesus. The halfway point in Mark's gospel is chapter 8, where Mark recorded that Peter confessed 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus predicted the Messiah's rejection, suffering, death, and resurrection three days later. And he's coming into his Father's glory when he returns. Chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. From here on, the gospel story moves to the climax of Jesus' death and resurrection. Before we start, it's worth remembering that the original Greek of the New Testament gospels and letters did not have chapters and verses. They were added much later. And if we look at chapter 9, verse 1, we'll see that it actually belongs to Jesus' speech in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 38, where Jesus addressed the crowd along with his disciples. So, reading chapter 9, verse 1, And he, referring to Jesus, said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. What did Jesus mean by that? There have been different interpretations. It's been interpreted as referring to Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, Pentecost, the fall of Jerusalem, or the successful mission of the church to the nations. But as one commentator has pointed out, the most natural view is to link Jesus' words in chapter 9, verse 1, with the transfiguration. This follows because it anticipates Jesus' death and resurrection, his ascension, and possibly Pentecost. So Jesus' words in chapter 9, verse 1, become a promise that the power and majesty of God and his kingdom would be evident very soon and would make themselves known to the disciples in stages. And six days later, the promise in 9, verse 1, starts to be fulfilled in chapter 9, verse 2. Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter, James and John, with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. Now we're not told which high mountain they ascended. Suggestions include Mount Tabor, Mount Hermon and Mount Meron. But that really doesn't matter. What is important, especially for Jewish readers, is that Mark's account of the transfiguration, even starting with the time signature of six days later, might well have reminded them of what happened in Exodus chapter 24, when the glory cloud of God's presence completely surrounded the mountain before the voice of God spoke and Moses entered the cloud. But now God is speaking of a newer and greater Moses. I would encourage you to read Exodus chapter 24 and Mark chapter 9 and see how many similarities you can find between the two in two events. What does he was transfigured before them mean? 
Well, it means that Jesus' appearance was radically changed. Matthew and Luke refer to Jesus' face. Matthew says his face shone like the sun. But Mark focused on Jesus' dazzling clothes, which were whiter than anyone in the world could bleach. Chapter 9, verse 3. One New Testament scholar says heavenly beings in the Bible and Jewish tradition are usually shining, radiating light like the sun or the stars and their clothes too are dazzling, unearthly in their splendour. This was a foretaste of Jesus' divine glory. Peter, James and John saw Jesus as he will appear at his coming in glory in the future. Then Jesus was joined by two great prophets of Israel's past, Moses and Elijah, who were the forerunners of the Messiah, Deuteronomy 18, 15, and Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus, but we're not told in Mark's gospel what they talked about. But Luke does. In Luke chapter 9, verse 31, we read, they spoke about his departure, and the Greek word there is exodus. Sound familiar? Which he was about to bring to fulfilment at Jerusalem. The New Testament scholar Richard Borkham asserts that the main reason why Moses and Elijah appeared was to show that Jesus was not in the same league as them, but was in a special category all of his own. But Peter made the mistake of thinking that Jesus, Moses and Elijah were equals. Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. Verse 5 of chapter 9. Peter, as he often did, spoke before he thought. That's why Mark adds his own comment in verse 6 of chapter 9. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. For these disciples, this was both an awe-inspiring and yet terrifying experience. Peter may have responded as if Jesus, Moses and Elijah were equals because the Jews hoped the nation of Israel would be restored to its properly constituted state as ruled by God. For that to occur, writes Richard Borkham, three anointed leaders were required. A king from the line of David, a high priest from the line of Aaron, and a prophet. Peter knew already that Jesus ticked the first box. One Jewish view was that Elijah would return as the great high priest. That ticked box too. And Moses, the greatest prophet, turned up. Then that ticked all three boxes and Israel would be ideally constituted. That might explain Peter's suggestion to honour each of them, these three figures, with some kind of tent or shelter. But the sudden appearance of a cloud covering them and the divine voice coming from it, 
verse 7, quickly squashed that idea. Ignoring Moses and Elijah, God declared Jesus to be his beloved son. This was the second time in Mark's gospel that God said this. The first time was at Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1, verse 11, when God said to Jesus, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Here in Mark chapter 9, verse 7, God's declaration was not for the benefit of Jesus, but for the benefit of the three disciples. It was a revelation to them. God rejected any idea that Jesus was one of three equals. Rather, God's voice singled Jesus out as unique. As, as Richard Balkan points put it, Peter's recognition of Jesus as Messiah evidently did not go far enough. Jesus is God's unique and uniquely beloved son. In chapter 9, verse 8, we're told that when the three disciples suddenly looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And that's how it should be. Let's pause and note here a paradox in Jesus being the beloved son. It's the beloved son who will suffer a violent death. Not Moses, not Elijah. They didn't. God will hand over his beloved son to mocking, torture and an abandoned death. Jesus had explained his suffering, rejection and death plainly to Peter in chapter 8, verse 31. But Peter wouldn't listen. Instead, he rebuked Jesus, chapter 8, verse 32. Then six days later, the divine command came. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. This might explain why the command in chapter 9, verse 7, occurs in the middle of Mark's story. When Jesus started teaching his disciples about his coming, suffering and death in chapter 8, verse 31. They didn't want to hear that and they didn't understand why he needed to suffer and die. So they were told to listen because Jesus would keep teaching them what was going to be required of him as the beloved son. There was no doubt they would see him again in heavenly glory, but not yet. The transfiguration was a preview, an unforgettable, encouraging, empowering preview of the final future beyond the cross. But first, the disciples have to follow Jesus on his way to the cross. On the way back down the mountain, Jesus ordered the three disciples not to tell anyone what they had seen until after he had risen from the dead. Verse 9 of chapter 9. 
This was not the first time that Jesus had not allowed the disciples to tell anyone certain things about him. In chapter 8, verse 30, he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now he placed a pause on them telling about his transfiguration on the mountain until after his resurrection. We're told in verse 10 of chapter 9 that the disciples kept it to themselves. But they talked among themselves about what Jesus meant by rising from the dead. As Jews, they expected the Messiah would destroy their enemies and establish the messianic kingdom. What did suffering, death and resurrection have to do with this? The disciples found it hard to accept the idea of a suffering Messiah. Now we can only imagine how confused the three disciples would have felt after seeing Moses and Elijah with Jesus on the mountain. So they asked Jesus, verse 11 of chapter 9, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? In the book of Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, God had promised he would send the prophet Elijah to Israel before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. But Elijah had only appeared and talked with Jesus for a few moments. So if Elijah had not yet come, how could he establish the final kingdom referred to in chapter 8, verse 38, when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels? Jesus agreed with the disciples about Elijah coming first and restoring all things. But then, as he often did in his ministry, Jesus asked his own question in chapter 9, verse 12. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? In this brief exchange in verses 11 to 13 of chapter 9, Jesus corrected two basic errors about Elijah and the Messiah. The first correction was that Elijah would introduce the suffering Messiah, not a conquering Messiah. The second correction was that Elijah had already arrived in the person of John the Baptist. Although Jesus didn't identify Elijah as John the Baptist here in Mark's Gospel, in Mark 9, Jesus did so uh, did identify John the Baptist as Elijah in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 10 to 14. Jesus also linked Elijah's suffering and rejection with that of his own suffer as the suffering Messiah. And Jesus stated that this was based in Scripture. Note the words. Why then is it written in verse 12 of chapter 9? And just as it, as it is written in verse 13, this was new and important information. Scripture had foreshadowed that the returning Elijah would suffer and be rejected and also that the Messiah would suffer, experience rejection and a violent death. So we can draw three points about 
the transfiguration. The first point is this. The transfiguration was the foretaste of Jesus' divine glory to come. It provided the hope that comes through the suffering, death and resurrection of Jesus. The transfiguration was both awe-inspiring and yet terrifying. And the thing is, when Jesus returns in glory, it also will be awe-inspiring and terrifying. Jesus' followers will rejoice at his return, but those who rejected him will find it a terrifying experience because it will usher in the final judgment. That's why we need to pray for and talk to friends and loved ones about putting their trust in Jesus. Secondly, the transfiguration was also a revelation that Jesus was more than the Messiah. He was certainly the Messiah, but the disciples also heard the voice of God declare that Jesus was God's unique and uniquely beloved son. Because Jesus was the son of God, it was absolutely essential that they obey God's command to listen to him. Are we listening to Jesus about who he is? Jesus is God's unique beloved son. He came to save sinners like you and me through suffering, rejection and a violent death and rose again three days later. Listening to Jesus requires accepting what he says as totally trustworthy and responding to it in obedience. Lastly, we don't often think of the transfiguration account as a Bible passage to point people to Jesus. But God in his infinite wisdom has used the account of the transfiguration to bring Muslim people to faith in Christ. David Garrison is a former missionary to Muslims who's written a book titled A Wind in the House of Islam. He tells about many Muslims coming to faith through dreams of the transfiguration of Jesus. He, wrote, he writes, A colleague has been serving God among Muslims long enough to have heard countless testimonies of dreams in which a being who shone bright as light appeared to them, beckoning them to come to him. In a recent encounter with a Muslim man who had experienced such a dream, my colleague simply opened his Bible to the story of Christ's transfiguration in Matthew 17 and invited his Muslim friend to read the first two verses. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Startled by the discovery, the Muslim responded, that's the guy, the guy in my dreams. Who is this? 
Who would have thought that the transfiguration of Jesus would be used in bringing people to faith in Jesus? We would do well to reflect on that as a possible evangelistic text, especially amongst Muslim people. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, thank you for this record of Jesus' transfiguration, which pointed to his divine glory to come. When he comes again, it will be awe-inspiring and a time of great rejoicing for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus. But for loved ones and friends who have not trusted in Jesus as Saviour and Lord, it will be terrifying because it will usher in their eternal separation from you, O God. When we ponder that eternal prospect, we cry out, Lord God, have mercy on them and by your Holy Spirit open their eyes to see Jesus, not just as the perfectly holy human who always obeyed you, nor even as the Messiah who came to save his people from their sins, but also as your unique and uniquely beloved Son. Thank you for showing us your infinite wisdom and mercy in using the account of Jesus' transfiguration to lead unsaved people, especially people of Muslim background, to seek after Jesus as Saviour and Lord and to bring them into the family of faith. Please continue to do that and please keep working in our hearts and changing us so that we might be more conformed to Jesus' likeness. To that end, help us to truly listen to what he has to say to us through your holy word and trust and obey. In his name we ask. Amen.